I'm Dave Cates, President and CEO of Denison Mines. Uh, we're a uranium developer focused in the Athabasca Basin region, northern Saskatchewan, uh, traded on the TSX under symbol DML and on the NYC American under DNN. Our company's flagship asset is the Wheeler River Project, uh, which is uh, going through the permitting process now and in the final stages uh, of that process as we approach a development decision targeted for mid-2025. David, can see you again. Um, and appreciate you coming on. Um, right, today, we're going to talk a little bit about macro because we're introducing this as a concept to uh, a lot of new people outs from outside of uh, mining. And we're also going to get into some of your projects proper. And I think the big question that I want answered is, get out. Is now's the time for rubber to hit the road. So how do you do that? How do you take advantage of that? But, but first, I'm going to just get a little bit of commentary from you on the marketplace. Obviously, your spot price has been on a, on a rip. Um, how do you see that? Well, why has that happened? And, you know, how do you see that playing out this year? Well, Matt, look, the um, spot market, we're following it closely. Um, we do have physical uranium holdings. Uh, so we entered 2024 with about 2.3 million pounds in uh, physical uranium, selling a little bit of our position late, late 23. So we we're watching it with plans to sell a little bit more in, um, in 24, probably in the range of 300,000 pounds, get us down to 2 million pounds. But um, so we are watching it closely. And what I can tell you is that the spot market's in incredibly thin. Now, everyone says that, or I've certainly heard that commentary from others. Uh, and it's, it's true. But um, when I say that, I mean, it's, it's the point where materials is just not available for certain period time periods and um you know there's like not an offer in the spot market for certain windows of time and so it, it is, has created quite a volatile situation but it's also really indicative of the broader situation i mean we do not have surplus material that's sloshing around in the hands of intermediaries that are looking to then market it and sell it for small spreads uh, the idea is that if, if material actually comes available to the market, it, it might actually move the price up rather than down because the intermediaries, they don't have a business without being able to buy something to resell. So it's it's really that thin. And that's part of why we've seen the price gap up a few times because we're still trying to discover at what price do do people make material that they might have available in a quantity where the seller uh, is outweighing the buyer demand. And look, it's, it's, it's actually slightly terrifying for the utilities when you think about it, because th these markets, we've always said they're sort of separate, sort of related, the term market, the spot market. They're far more related now than, than they have been, because many of the term contracts that have been signed over the last few years are market related rather than fixed price with base escalated features. So the fact that the scarcity in this discretionary market is driving up price is driving up price on lots of deliveries, not just that that spot market discretionary deal. But that is helping with the utilities then having a willingness to really be motivated to secure the supply because they cannot see it in the spot market the way they did five years ago. That was a common, sorry to run on on this, but that was a common thing five years ago is that you'd meet with the utility crowd and say like, look, I mean, the writing is on the wall. The projects don't make money at these prices. You know, Cameco shutting things down. Very few or almost no new projects are going to be incentivized. And they'd say, well, I'm not too worried about that because, you know, there's, there's lots of material out there. 
And you talk to more than one of these utilities and they would say the same thing. And then you point them to the fact that they were all kind of relying on the same uh, material to be their backstop. And there wasn't enough in the spot market for all of them. And eventually someone would take it up and a bunch of them would be left holding a bag, an empty bag. And, you know, it turns out spot took a lot up, but others as well. And now we're in a situation where the utilities can't look to the spot market for meaningful sources of supply. They do need to be in the term and contract market. And now that chemicals sold, basically sold out for the foreseeable future, we are in a place where we're back to asking what price actually incentivizes enough new production to like make this whole thing work. And the answers to that are like alarming at, at times because the projects that are needed are high cost, high risk jurisdictions, and uh, the cost of money is up too. So the IRRs that people need are not 12% anymore. All of that's definitely driving the incentive price higher than where people were looking at it a few years ago. So it's pretty robust right now in terms of uh, both the term market and the spot market. Well, if you're a seller, um, and that's what I want to talk about is the psychology. It's yes, gone from buyer's market to seller's market and, and everything that that implies. But there's a, there's a kind of uh, hinterland in there where the, the choices being made after 10 years of being pummeled, sellers are you know, thinking, well, hang on a sec, is, is it payback time? Is it a case of, well, let's hang on, this price is going to rip? Because what we're seeing is it's always been a case of if it, when the price is moving slowly, actually term contracts matter and, and the way that you write them up really matters. Now with spot price ripping through through the phases as where well, some of the reported term contract um, the prices being achieved or being talked about, it feels like it's lagging a bit, but it, it, who knows? Because these are all private, private contracts. But I, I'm interested in the psychology between when someone like you who's kind of thinking, well, I, I need to get my project permitted and licensed and I need to, you know, get into FID situation. I, I mean, I've got a timeless market. Um, you're, you're thinking to yourself, well, I need to get that finance, so I'm going to need to get a market. To do that, I'm going to need to get people to sign up these term contracts. It's what bankers like. It's a little bit of comfort rather than just pure spot market. That didn't work out for a few people last cycle, right? So, what what are the what are the decision making criteria that you're looking at when you're saying let's wait or let's go or I wait how do you manage that? Yeah, look, that that is actually a very challenging part of our business right now um, to to make those choices because you're looking at a very volatile market. Um, you can be you know incredibly bullish if you want to be. Um, and and say I don't know where the price settles, and and the reality is it, it, it's going to be hard to predict where the spot price does go to because it, it it will move on factors that you know are slightly more irrational than than like the the broader longer term picture. the The thing in our case is it's so challenging because of the position we've put ourselves in, which is favorable. So you know our project has about a four hundred million dollar Canadian upfront capex. We, we, in our, we, our slide deck refers to an October sort of pro forma cash balance or, you know, working capital investment balance of around 390 million CAD. And so that included the physical uranium priced only though at like $75. So we're now, you know, meaningfully above that. And it included about 130 million in cash. So 
when you really look at where we'd be today, we have almost all of the project financed. Now we'll have to spend some money before we get there. Um, and so we will need some capital, but the amount we need is not, is not meaningful in the grand scheme of our company's market cap and typical developer project finances. And so that causes us complication because if it was, if we needed a lot of money, we would have to be going to the bankers or the, or the, or the others that would provide credit. And you're absolutely right. Many of them would look for uh, contract cover. And, and we don't judge those that are doing that because that's probably the right you know call to, in, in many cases, access that lower cost credit, de-risk it with contracts. We really don't have that need because we aren't looking for those kind of dollars in terms of uh, funding the, the balance of, of, our, of the project capital that we don't already have covered. And so that makes the challenge even greater because it's like an equation that has multiple variables that are unknown. And the more of the variables you have, the more complicated it becomes to solve the equation to the point where sometimes it's impossible unless you basically constrain. And we don't have the constraints that you would normally see or have seen in other, in other developer cases. And so it does really make us make calls on the market. And look, there are different structures that have become prominent now than uh, before. Like part of the reason it seems like the fixed price is lagging is that there aren't a lot of fixed price deals, right? People, th this is the long-term price. Generally, it requires a fixed price or a base price and an escalation for it to be printed as a long-term price. Very few people are doing those. Most people are doing market-related with floors and ceilings, but the boundaries on those floors and ceilings have moved rapidly. I mean, Cameco has been contracting for how many years now to get MacArthur back on? Great success story. But as far as I understand, they don't have a ceiling that's above $100. So that means, you know, every dollar we're above $100, they're not, cap they're not participating in that. Now, they have exposure maybe on their future mines and all those sorts of things. But that is challenging. You know, I think our investors like that we're unhedged. But at the same time, we are going to be producing 8 to 9 million pounds a year for the first five years of Phoenix. And we need to sell them to someone. And so it is probably one of our greatest challenges right now. I can tell you it's it's a priority for us to develop that strategy, but whatever the strategy is, it will no doubt have layers to it because we don't believe that we can perfectly predict anything. You know, we, we, we just don't think we can pick the exact moment in the market and contract all of our pounds. That's irrational to think that you could do that. Um, we don't know that being fully market related is the answer in the long run, but we also don't know that we want to have a significant amount of fixed pricing. So we're in, we're, we're on that journey right now. Uh, and you know, to this point we're unhedged. And so we're, we're in a great place to be negotiating with utilities where the price has moved up and there's the potential that it moves up further. Another thing I might layer on Matt is when you're having these discussions, there's sometimes more, there's more than price that goes into this. Sometimes it's flexibility optionality. Those kind of variables have ticked to a seller's market, whereas sort of in the previous markets, you'd have buyers that were negotiating basically free options to double their quantities or, you know, something like that at a, at a price that was pre-negotiated. That optionality is very costly, but was not really being factored in to many of the commercial discussions or negotiations in our space. Now, we're you know, having line of sight to meaningful production, 
is valuable and a good jurisdiction, um, we're able to have more favorable discussions as we as we build these contracts. Okay, lots of flexibility, lots of optionality. You you want that at the table as you say. And we'll come on to what line of sight to production means in, in a second. Um, the, and, and I think it's worth sort of pointing out that during the last cycle, I think it's Powers and maybe John John Borshoff say, "I'm going to go spot only," and that that really didn't work out for them at all, or, or, or personally. Well, it was not the right call maybe for that project because of cost profile. And it's it's like we but be you could, it could be you're saying how it could be I mean we have we have a seven dollar U S opex per pound so you know like in terms of like a floor that we could offer even if you load in all in costs right like we could offer a very low cost floor um, we could be be fully market related I'm not saying that that's the right call but some of those past stories they got hung up on being unhedged. And then having a project that couldn't handle being unhedged plus a debt load. That was maybe a bad, bad combination. Yeah. Okay. So let's gonna stick with this this I guess money money side of stuff as well. Cause you you know, you're you know, I I, I think like I say you could you've got a few options on the table. So I'm looking I'm looking at your two and a half million pounds, which you, you picked up for what did you pick it up for? Just like twenty nine sixty six US per pound. Right. Okay. So in the money, in the money, and it comes back to that question of what do you, what do you do with it? Because there's a, the, I guess there's an angle here where if you've got desperate utility saying, "Give me it now," even if it's at, you know, spot price as, as it stands, and because who knows where it's going to run, do you talk about layers? Do you layer in some kind of relationship on future purchasing, or do you treat it individually and say? This is the deal now. That's it. We'll come back to you at a later date if you want more pounds. Would you try and tie up some kind of relationship for your future? And yeah, you know, line of sight production. Yeah, look, it really depends on the value we're we're getting for the pounds. And there's lots of different types of value, right? So yeah, the the pounds and our strategy is basically to sell down to about two million. So we've already sold two hundred thousand pounds late twenty three, and we'll sell during twenty four about three hundred thousand pounds. And the idea is to have our balance sheet in incredibly strong position for the big for FID without selling the rest of the uranium or project financing, so that we are able to advance whenever we want to uh, on on the project. But the two million is really there for us to make a call on project financing, and there are lots of ways we can work it. We've talked before about using it as collateral to access credit. Uh, but you know, today you're right. Like the uranium price is meaningfully higher than where it was when we started, and so there are scenarios where you know there's a uranium price that gets us very close to funding our entire project uh, by selling our physical. And so some people might be say, "Oh no, no, don't do that." You know, you know the price is going to go to the moon. Well, it, it, it may very well do that, but we'd be selling, you know, say two million pounds. To build our project and our project's going to produce pounds at $16 all in cost, right? So we would be doing it to unlock all of the other pounds and, and that, that could be a good trade, but it is about finding the party that will value it at the highest price. And that could be to your point, selling it to a utility customer for delivery, maybe not tomorrow, but you know what, by the time we need the money, um, as part of an arrangement that involves other off-taking or other material uh, that's being sold into the future on preferential terms. Pricing those preferential terms, you know, that's that's going to be a journey because 
It may be that there's a different party out there that is just desperate for the material if we hold it for a little bit longer that we'll just command a higher price that's you know sufficient enough to uh, build the project. And so no doubt we will have layers of how we treat the, the two million pounds as well. But I'm, I'm really grateful that we have those pounds now um, because they have opened up a significant number of new options to us. And I just underscore, like as a developer in any commodity that does not have a producing asset, I, I would challenge to find another developer in the commodity space that is as well capitalized as we are at this stage. Our project's not yet permitted. We have no debt. And yet we have uh, working capital and investments that are almost or roughly at the level of our initial capex. I mean, that is an incredible position to be in. Let's talk Let's talk about that factor you mentioned earlier, which is line of sight. What that means to you and what it should mean to the market. You've got, you've got obviously, kind of three kind of key, key projects, uh, various um, percentage of ownerships, various stages of development, and a, and a kind of big portfolio sitting behind that. So when, you, when you're trying to... Because obviously, one one would hope for a re-rate if you become a producer. Certainly, in a market as you know, devoid of um, production as as we seem to be heading into, um, again, well, it's another another conversation. So, what's the project that you point me to? Are we are we looking at Wheeler River? Is that the first thing we're looking at? Yeah. So, just new, news this morning um, is that we have announced a restart of the McLean Lake uranium mining operation with the rail. Uh, so, our first. Commercial production will, will come from McLean Lake using our Sabre, Sabre mining method, and we're expecting that uh, in 2025. It's it's not an enormous quantity. I mean, entire the, the whole joint venture is projecting around 800,000 pounds production in 2025. We're about we're 22 and a half percent. Okay, so that puts us in that you know 180,000 pound range. But the the project and that that production is expected to uh, carry on through to 2030. Um, from Sabre at McLean. But the project that really matters for us is, is, is Wheeler River and Phoenix, right? This is the project we've been advancing, de-risking, and permitting for several years on track for uh, investment decision by mid-25, which would put us in you know a place of having first production towards the end of 2027, beginning of 2028. And that's in the range of like eight to nine million pounds a year for the first five years. And then around three to four million pounds a year in the last five years of a ten-year mine life. That's the project that really w- will move the needle for us. Right. Okay. So, so I missed that about McLean because I guess early in the morning you were talking uh, as well. Okay. So that's that's good news, but it's not a whole bunch of pounds. Um, yeah, and probably not a whole bunch of. Is it, I mean, co- contribution in terms of net contribution to you. What would that? Uh, you know, at these pri- at these prices, it's going to have you know we'll get around just shy of a million pounds over the life of what we've planned. And it's going to have a generous contribution at, at these prices. I mean, it made, it was incentivized at an, in a price environment lower than much lower than where we are today. So it, it'll be helpful, but, but if, you know, you want to back up the, the, the 2.4, $2.5 billion Canadian market cap, you're going to go to, to Phoenix and you're going to go to Griffin. You know, those are the, those are the assets. Okay, fine. So, so let's do this. I just, I just want to be kind of clear because I don't, I don't want to, you know, saber rattling by people in the market and go, oh, they cracked it. We're in production. It, McLean is, is good, good contribution, covers a bunch of costs, but it, it ain't, it ain't a $1.8 billion company, right? I, I think it just speaks to like our, it, it kind of speaks to our portfolio. We do have more than people sometimes look at 
in terms of assessing value. But but yes, no, it's it's Wheeler River, and, and we're not shy about that. Okay, so let, let's look at Wheeler River and what near term again means to you. Okay, because um, what's left to get in terms of what do you need to be able to say to say right, we can now raise the money to get into production. So yeah. You, you talk about a short timeline, but you got a bunch of stuff to deliver. What are they? Well, look, I love your terminology of rubber baiting the road, um, but but I, I kind of want to back it up a bit to say that the rubber met the road like three years ago for this project um, because a theme that people have to start processing for supply-demand broadly is how incredibly difficult it is to advance a new uranium mining project. I say it from the most authentic place possible, having led a company that's been doing this for the last several years, it, it's actually quite a lot of work. I mean, hiring the team, building the team, de-risking, working through all the studies, this is very challenging. And many of the new projects, you know, they have not had the rubber meet the road yet because they're in companies, and this is not meant to be negative to these companies, it's fact. They're in companies that have, have like five people who work for them. And basically have had projects, you know, in inventory and, you know, yeah, okay, the uranium price is in a place now where, you know, maybe we can make an 18% IRR. Well, that's great, except for how are you going to do it? Because the work we've done over the last four years has been incredibly difficult and incredibly important to be where we are now. So that's why I challenge that, like the rubber meeting the road, we started that four years ago. What's left now is really final stages. So we have detailed engineering design remaining on the project. And we announced just earlier this week, $16 million contract with Wood to carry out the detailed engineering design for most of the project. And they've been with us through the feasibility study and, and all of our de-risking. So it's gonna be a, an efficient, really good relationship there. Um, we have to build that plan up to the point where we have construction ready drawings and we have to have a construction execution plan. All of that work is on track for completion by mid-25. That's coordinated with our permitting process. So environmental assessment, licensing, all of this work has been progressing, you know, with, you know, us, us commenting little on it because at the end of the day, the critical path is get your license, you know, have your EA approved, get your license. The, the steps in between, like, to me, they're, they're, it's, it's like editorial color that's not that useful. But we're on that track where we're still expecting mid-2025 to be in a place to have our detailed drawings and designs and uh, and our permitting in hand so we could actually make an FID decision, right? And together with that, just layer in one other piece is procurement. So we got to have drawings and designs, but if you want to start construction shortly after you've gotten approval, you have to have things coming and you have to have things coming that needed long leads. So we started that last uh, year, late 23. We raised money, uh, equity offering to basically cash up so we could start the long lead procurement process. And we have already made commitments to things that have two-year two -year timelines to get them to site. So late 23, well, guess what? That's late 25 in terms of getting that to site. And that's on the other side of our expected approval timeline. So the rubber, it has met the road. And we're now focused really on on execution. No, I I, I kind of get it, and we're going to mix metaphors here. But the, my truck has uranium in it. That's the rubber hitting the road there. And I guess that's what I'm trying to get to is because we are entering a kind of massive deficit period with uranium coming from 
I don't know where we're gonna we're gonna skip the obviously it needs to be enriched, etc. Bit, but if you don't produce it, it can't be enriched, and and, and the utilities can't can't use it, right? Um, so I want uranium on my truck, and that that's where I'm getting to it because I don't I'm looking at developers talking a good game, but are nowhere as you said it's a difficult process depending on where you are in the world it's gonna be different but it's still difficult nowhere near showing that they're going they have any intent to you know get into production um other than just playing the market game so for, for you i just want to be clear about wheeler river okay so i get the i, I get where you're at in terms of i think you submitted the draft environmental um impact study i'm and the you know, and, and it's, you know getting wood on board is oh fantastic. So there's lots of admin happening in the background, but at the end of the day, it's got to be can this thing get through all the phases it needs to? So if I if I look at the kind of technical aspect of what you're trying to do there, is have you done everything that you need to do to sate the demands of around the environmental, around First Nations, around federal, around state? Uh, provincial, I should say, uh, permissions. Yeah, look, the from a technical standpoint, the project is de-risked. There's nothing further that we can do to de-risk. We are optimizing as part of our design engineering. But from our standpoint, completing a successful feasibility field test where we actually recovered 14,000 pounds uranium from ISR, um, from our ISR test pattern, a commercial scale test pattern, is, is really as far as we can go. Uh, so we're, we're but that was on the recovery side, right? So you've recovered it. You can get pounds out, but I'm, I'm so more. And we, and we reclaimed. We reclaimed the we reclaimed the well field. Um, yes, no, we, we've we've done all of that. Um, so th there's nothing left to do on the technical de-risking standpoint. And this is maybe just some color on that. Like our teams, our teams are broad now. We have a large team in Saskatoon. Uh, we're talking 40, 50 people in Saskatoon. Uh, we have a 12,000 square foot office building that we purchased in downtown Saskatoon for these for these folks that are working so hard for us. But um, there's a team there called Technical Services and Project Evaluation. That team is basically rolling off of Phoenix because they've finished the de-risking. And it's being handed to our, our operations and project execution team, a whole bunch of engineers that are, are working on draw, building, working with our outside engineers to literally build ready for execution drawings for the project. So yeah, like we, we've, we've gone past that. Now in terms of the environmental assessment, uh, you know, we're progressing uh, certainly within our expectations of how that would go. It's, it's a process that we expected to take time. Our team has great familiarity with the federal regulatory regime, which I, I think I would describe as being the critical path. The provincial uh, regulatory regime is is, has been successful for us. We're progressing fine on that, but it's not the critical path item. Like we, we, we see a resolution of the province, essentially we're, we're, we're ready, but it, it, it isn't the gating item to building the mine. It's going to be the federal approval. And that's moving consistent with our expectations of, of how it would. And we've not seen anything come up. And all of this stuff, Matt, is also public, right? Like people can Google our project, uh, find federal process but nothing has really come up on that that causes us any concern great great and i kind of want to be able to you know cut that off at the knees but by, by, by asking these questions right which which is was that a, a process which you determine here's what we're going to do and here's what we're going to report on and you guys can assess that and see if you think we've done it well or was that sort of done and was, was that was that process agreed jointly with all interested parties to say 
here's the best way to go about testing this thing. Yes, we can extract. Yes, we can remediate. Yes, the long-term long -term safety of, of, of this is good. Because it's uranium, right? We're talking uranium here. Highest standards possible. Yeah, so, so good, good question. Actually, actually, quite an insightful question to understand, like, how does that process really function with the parties? So closer to the, like, I would like to say it was it's collaborative and that we're working together and we absolutely are with our regulator and, and look, our federal regulator is very robust. Um, but they're also very like, they try to be very commercial. We, we had our field test permitted by the feds and the province, something that there was no guide, no guidebook to permit. But, um, I'd love to say it's entirely collaborative. It, it's not no. Right. Like, and it's not the first one either. It's kind of the third option, which is you do what the regulators say you need to do. And so we, we have an understanding that what we need to do is clear the hurdle that's set for us. And the best way to do that, Matt, is to do good quality work to make sure that you meet the requirements. If you don't, you can expect that you will take more time to have your work criticized and to do additional work. So you might as well just do good work to meet or exceed their requirements and reduce the path of like reduce the resistance on the path. But the, and the reason I ask is like uh, you've got no chinchillas there. That's the good news. Um, you know, we've seen companies you know go do what they've been asked to do, and then get to the end of the process, which takes time and time is money. At the end of which, the regulator goes, or the or the or the, or the mining department goes. Actually, no, not good enough. You go back and do it again. You've got chinchillas on your property. So, it, it, you know what I mean? And it's kind of delayed things by 18 months. Well, you know, I, I wonder I wonder about that. I wonder about that because I don't think it's in the regulator's interest to, to pull something out at the last second. And so you do sometimes wonder if that's a communication thing where, where companies are guiding, oh, no, no, we're doing great. And then, you know, something does happen. Now, look, I mean, you're asking me the question. I'm telling you we're progressing fine. Um, like we don't have any expectation of any any hurdles. But yeah, look, sometimes I can I could definitely comprehend how there would be groups that think, oh, no, we have this in hand. And then one of the issues ends up not being in hand. There is inherently that risk when you're dealing with, uh, you know, an external regulator for any of these projects. Like there's nothing we have visibility to on that. And Again, we just try to beat it by doing good work. You, you've described a process that gets you through to sort of the end, end of 2025, and certainly in terms of long lead uh, items um, and getting them to, to site to be able to kind of start the process. You've got a bunch of money uh, in, in various forms uh, or liquid assets, we'll call them, um, which will get you so far. Remind me of the numbers on... Wheeler River in terms of the the the, the build and and um, in terms of the economics, please. Yeah, so Phoenix, which is where we're starting, right? Um, so it's around four hundred and twenty million dollars upfront capex. Opex around six six twenty eight, and all in costs like all in, including initial capital, sustaining capital on opex closures, just over sixteen dollars US. So it has some pretty high margins. Just looking up on my on my screen over here, Matt, because I don't have it all memorized. But um, using a uranium selling price uh, in our base case in the $65 to $70 range, which is now below market, uh, we were uh, pre-tax MPV around $2.3, $2.4 Pretty Pretty robust uh, project with $66 to $70 uranium. 
and today we're sitting 105 and we are unhedged. Okay, so that's that session. So in terms of when we're, when we're talking line of sight, you, you feel that this, where does this put you in relation to some of these other conversations that are happening out there, right? We're, like I say, you know, lots of developers talking a good game, but perhaps, perhaps haven't done the hard yards yet. Um, where does this put you? In relation to those advanced development stories, because we said we've got a couple in, uh, in Namibia. You've got you kind of got your Batamas, Deep Yellows, and you know, and obviously lots of other producers there. Where do you think you are? Yeah, look, I think if you look at sort of the restart crowd, um, we, we've seen most people make a call on projects that are going to restart, and and I would layer McLean and Sabre into that bucket now. And, you know, those projects are not adding up to a lot of pounds and they're not changing anyone's models really in, in the market. You go to that next group of uh, greenfield development projects, which are absolutely needed uh, in our market. We need multiple of them to get even close to balancing things out. And look, I think we're as close as one can be and as credible as one can be in the larger scale uh, group of development assets. So we've, we've been investing the money over the last several years because we didn't need the price to go up for us to justify that. And that, that really can't be overstated how important that is. You know, we, we were able to raise the money because our project was economic when we had a $29 uranium price, when we had a $45 uranium price. So all that work has happened. All the recruitment necessary has happened. All the systems that have been developed, that's been happening. Now we're literally in execution mode where we have people functioning and doing things needed to get us to that final stage of being construction ready. I, I really struggle to see, and again, I'm not trying to be critical because I think many of these projects, you know, will happen, but the way they happen and the timing on how they happen, I think is, is going to be far worse than what some people expect because the challenge ahead of these companies that don't have the kind of financial resources we've built up and our developers or explore developer companies without producing cash producing assets, it's going to be incredibly difficult just to resource the team. And then, you know, while the capital may be there, it'll be incredibly difficult to execute on these projects. And so I do think that projects will be delivered at higher costs because many people have not updated for inflation and later than most people are expecting. And I think a lot of these projects have the risk for um, execution difficulties that could be challenging for some of these companies to manage. Uh, so, look, I, th I think we're one of the top stories in the space when it comes to a developer. And I think our balance sheet makes us potentially the top story because the risk to investors around significant further dilution is quite low in our case. Uh, it would really be elective for us, and it would be because we determined that to be the best course not because it's necessary, because we have to raise a billion dollars and find, you know, all different sources of capital. You know, we're, we really are in a, an enviable position. And you're going to let us know, well, I guess it comes back to the conversation at the beginning about, you know, how, how do you time it, seller's market, the psychology, et cetera. You'll be looking at the variables. Okay, we'll, we'll come back to that another time, I'm sure. Um, what, you're, what you've also done is kind of built up a portfolio and, you know, sort of in, in terms of giving you advanced development stories, early development stories, a lot of exploration, and also picking up little chunks of other Iranian players in other jurisdictions. What, what was the rationale there? Well, look, we're maybe maybe to spin that slightly differently, that question. Um, 
like we, we have the benefit of having a long history as a company. And we do have a diverse asset base, even though it's centric in the Athabasca Basin. As a manager, like business manager, I've really appreciated having a portfolio because the development game and the, you know, everyone has seen the mining life cycle curve or some will refer to it as the Lassonde curve. Like the development phase can be incredibly difficult because you have very little to talk about except for things that can be bad news. And so people say, well, why would I, why do I hold that stock? And I'll wait for everything to be good and then I'll get in, you know, that, that, that's the typical narrative with the portfolio. It's given us multiple lever levers to, to pull as the market moves. And it's given us stories that allow our company to be more dynamic than just this very linear, you know, does Phoenix, when does Phoenix develop and what's the timing or what, are there any delays? So we've, we've really valued that. And I think what you've seen, Matt, is that we're willing to be a little bit creative in terms of where we gain extra exposure. Uh, usually very low risk things that we assess as having high upside is what we're looking for, trying to leverage our industry knowledge or technical knowledge to do that. But, but I am really excited about the portfolio because while we focus on Phoenix and we talk about Griffin and sometimes we'll, we'll talk about Waterbury THT as development assets that are you know, all in the bottom quartile of the cost curve, what people weren't talking about, and we usually didn't have time, was McLean Lake coming back on to produce pounds, which we've now announced, and a project like Midwest, where Midwest is being assessed for ISR mining uh, together with our partner Arano there. Now, we have 25% of Midwest but we're doing the work on an ISR mining assessment. And Midwest, when you do like sort of the uh, comparison of Midwest versus other projects, it's it's better than THT. It's not quite as good as Phoenix. So people can use that as a wide error bar to say, where could this project come out? Nobody's got that in our, in our models or in their navs for a company. They've all got X number of pounds times Y price per pound or value per pound to do a per pound estimate of Midwest. We're working on a PEA for for that, and we've been de-risking that together with Arano. I just see that as something that does give us this ability to be more dynamic than just linked to uranium price and Phoenix, you know, progress. So that's why I like the portfolio piece. Um, it, it gives us more to do, and it gives our investors more exposure to like actual business value creation. Talk to me about Govex, because like, Govex is like the, I, I guess, the outlier in. In, in this, well, on lithium, um, where you go, I I kind of like the odds in terms of Niger, the the type of project it is, um, and you know because obviously you know Niger has has been through a tricky year or so. Why? Because I, I you're right. I do like some of the the kind of things that you've done, like going buying pounds, going and. Getting it to the timing of you know things that you, that you've done, Niger seems like well, surely that's a little bit tricky, and it's all, it's out of the wheelhouse. And why? Well, so we got into Govex years ago um, when we sold our African assets and focused in Canada. So so we vended in Matanga, which is in Zambia, to get a position in Govex. And and look, I think Govex is a stock that people have to watch closely. This the the, the coup in Niger. There's no doubt had a significant impact on valuation of a company like that. It's got a mine permitted project that is is, is definitely in the money, um, you know, today uh, with Matawela, and they've got all this stuff sorted out broadly with the government. Um, outside of the fact that there's a, a coup, and and that hasn't seemed to affected the 
um, relationship with the project and the government. It's more of the public politics of the country. So I do think that all those players that are operating in Niger have to be watched closely because to the extent that any of that's resolved or sort of, even if it settles in a way that sort of the global community, uh, you know, is a little less anxious about Niger, the projects there have, have great potential and are amongst the best in Africa to, to be developed. So it, it is a high risk place to be investing uh, because of the coup. But with all the other names having moved as much as they have, it, it may be the place where, you know, people can still have sort of a, uh, you know, a, a foothold in the market that doesn't reflect uh, current pricing, let's, let's, let's say it that way. So I wouldn't be, like, we, we have a large position still in GoVX. I have a personal position in GoVX. I'm, I'm not a seller of GoVX. I, I certainly want to see the, the coup situation work out before I make any decisions what I do. Uh, what Dennis does with his position there. Yeah, we, de we definitely wish Dan Major all the best on that one. Um, right, here's this, here's another discussion that I have regularly with market commentators, which is I say, we, you know, you'll be there. The demand supply fundamentals of uranium are fantastic, right? They've they've gone. Let's let's say spot prices trebled in the last two years, maybe even twenty months, right? Fantastic. Lithium did the same. And it didn't work out so well for them. Cobalt did the same, didn't work out so well. You know, we've seen the same thing in, in the nickel price in the last, again, two, two years. That, that hasn't worked out so well. And you, you will argue the case to me that, you know, uranium is a very, very different profile. And, and of course you would, and I'll buy it. But why, why are we, are people talking about lithium in the context of Denison? Well, you know, I, I can understand why. Um, I, you know, I don't think they should too much, though. Uh, we, we made a small investment in a uh, lithium brine project in uh, in Saskatchewan, so in our backyard. Um, it's absolutely not not core to our company. I, I, I've joked around with a number of people that the purchase price, if we execute all the phases of a multi-phased earn-in, which is a pretty low-risk structure, would represent less than 0.3, less than 0.3% of our market cap. So um, I know how people sometimes read headlines, but I would definitely urge people to just check some of the numbers there to see that Dunstan has not become a, a major investor in lithium. But we do, um, we do think that we have a, a great platform in Saskatchewan for technical de-risking. And there are similarities um, between DLE uh, lithium extraction from brine in Saskatchewan and what we're doing with ISR mining. And so our team has the capability for that. And I mentioned a little bit earlier to you that we were talking about how our teams have transitioned. And so our technical team uh, is doing a little, lot less on Phoenix and we're able to now uh, deploy them to, you know, THT Midwest and, and even this uh, KLP project that we have a uh, partnership with Grounded Lithium on. And uh, look, I, Matt, I'm about value creation, okay? We're not changing our strategy on uranium. We are a uranium company. We're in a develop Phoenix and generate enormous free cash flows from hitting the market at the right time with uranium production from Phoenix. But when I see the potential for a really uh, positive market in the long run that's become very unloved in the short run and the ability to de-risk using the platform we have to unlock like potentially hundreds of millions of dollars of value from that project, I'm, I, mean, I think it's our duty to evaluate things like that to bring it forward for our shareholders. So. 
That's why you've heard a little bit of lithium. I do think lithium and uranium are different. Um, and I know that I don't have to twist your arm to explain that. But the demand side for, for uranium is very durable, predictable, and clear without factoring on enormous growth. But the growth that is coming on is large capital investments from nations, utilities, that sort of thing for power that the globe needs. And so the ability to predict the stability of demand for uranium, I think, is gr greater than the ability to predict demand for lithium. And that's what I believe we've seen is that lithium long term, <clears throat> I think I'm very positive on, but we've certainly seen the de demand decline greater than maybe expectations or not accelerate at the rate of expectations in the near term. And that's caused sort of knee-jerk reaction in that market. The other piece I'd say is supply response. It takes a long time to build a build permanent uranium mine. Some of those lithium projects were able to respond faster and then, then I would expect us to see on the uranium side. Well, I think we'll we'll, we'll see about that as well. It seems, it seems to be the, the coming because it's very technical metal as well, right? You know, there's parallels in, in that. But the, as there is in permitting and et cetera, so okay, digging you out a little bit. But it was a bit of fun. I think I don't think anyone was taking it too seriously. So it's point point three percent of of market cap. Um, did you say market cap or nerve market cap? Market, market cap, cap. Market uh, cap. but yeah. but presumably a little bit more than 0.3 of effort in, in in the short term with with, with hopefully some return on that. Um, look, let's wrap it up there. That's a really good session. We haven't seen you for a bit for for about four four or five months. Um, nice to sort of see the markets move through the phases. Nice to see you positioning yourself to take advantage of that near term production. Indeed. See you soon. Yeah. Thanks very much, Matt.